Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. With that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely. And with me as always is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. A quick overview of this podcast. Every month, Chris and I hop on here and we talk about different articles, topics, and things that stood out the most to us during the month. And sometimes we'll also review the most interesting things in event-driven land. So today we kind of wanted to do a little bit more of a macro-driven podcast, and we were going to start off by talking about focusing on macro kind of through a retail view, and then we might switch over and talk about two of the more interesting and controversial publicly traded companies, Overstock and Tesla. So Chris, you know, most major indexes are down kind of three to 5% during the month, which you look at it and it's not that big a move, but in the moment it can feel kind of big. The yield curve's been inverting. The most popular thing you'll see in the financial press right now is stock market's down, yield curve inverted. Are we on the verge of a recession? So I wanted to talk about all that, but I wanted to do it through the lens of, you know, this earnings season's major retailers have seemed to be reporting incredible numbers. Target is actually the best performing stock in the S&P 500 this month with the shares up a really incredible first a company that large, 25%. Walmart, Home Depot, Lowe's, all of them have reported really positive earnings. All of them have come out and said like, look, we know people are scared. Yes, there's trade fears, but the consumer's strong and our outlook looks really good. So I, I wanted to flip it over to you. You know, there's this divergent macro view, yield curve inverted, recession on the horizon versus the people who actually see consumer shop retail view, hey, things are going well. What do you kind of think here? I think about everything kind of, I start from a policy perspective. And if you look at the decision makers historically, and you look at the people whose decisions, uh, who have to live with their decisions, uh, who, who live with those decisions, there's this big difference, which is highly ideological people and partisan people tend to be idea purists and try to uh, think about things and assume other people do too from kind of a partisan vantage point. The vast majority of people don't care about any of that at all. We live in a world where there's been a big round of tax cuts that were in many ways quite progressive, at least state by state and tax jurisdiction by tax jurisdiction progressive, with no coherent uh, demand that any type of broad-based transfer payment or other big government program gets cut back proportionally. So you've had kind of a three-dessert-a-day spending policy, a three-dessert-a-day tax policy, with a huge amount of pressure to have a monetary policy with every kind of consistent uh, historical philosophy would say should be a countervailing influence, just pile on a second round of dessert each meal. Guess what? It's worked. So at the low end or at the other end of the process from the ideas people, the people who are living their lives, regular people, going to Home Depot, Lowe's, and Walmart, uh, asking themselves, so what's the nut I have to pay on a HELOC right now? Really, really low. Yep. Do I have some project? Do I literally have a job today and the money to do it? Yeah, I do. Retail's great. And what the costs are, are on the idea side, on the, is this building up a big uh, society on the knife edge of a lot of risks, that's for later. That's something that you can worry about if you like worrying about. But if you want to uh, do a big project today uh, in the real world, now is as good a time as ever. Yeah, look, I think that's right. On the on the deficit side, I, I think it's incredible how many people, you know, four years ago were deficits were their number one concern. And then this year, like we're, I think we're passing a trillion dollars in deficit now and nobody really talks about that anymore. I, I do think that's been interesting, but I think that's definitely been interesting. And, and the, the market is, of course, 
a discounting mechanism, and I'd say it's more of a discounting mechanism than people's or retail behaviors. Uh, I think that if you look at the market as a discounting mechanism, it's very hard to get away from the overall view on risk. You know, if you look at value stocks, stocks that are kind of lumped in that category, which although an imperfect category, but it does tend to be uh, where we might look for long ideas for the most part. It's very hard to avoid lots of increasing cross-correlation. So you see the cross-correlations between sectors. So it's very hard to have like a long short strategy and pick winners and losers among sectors that tend to more than historically move together. Value has not just been weak versus a number of specific categories that, again, just hard to get away from an overall view on risk versus non-value versus liquidity craving large cap. And then also most dramatically recently saw some very interesting data on value versus low vol, regardless of value, regardless of expense, the lower vol, and then combine these cross tabs with large cap. If you have a lot of liquidity and you have low volatility of a stock, the market currently just craves that. And just on the the low volatility and value being dead, I do think it's interesting. Like over the past six years, you know, everybody talked, and we've talked about it in separate podcasts. You know, Fang has worked, passive investing has worked, all these things have worked. And I do wonder, like going forward, is we saw Michael Burry come out a couple of weeks ago and decry the the brewing bubble in passive stocks. And I do wonder going forward, you know, if Fang at any point is not, you know, up 15% every every year, do, does this all kind of start to break down? And I, I think we've talked about it a couple of times. I don't know if it's been on the podcast or not, but, you know, every private equity manager I follow and I follow all the private equity managers, all of them come out and I, I agree with this view, which is why I express it. They say, hey, if you look in the public markets, there's actually a lot of value out there. If you look at a company that isn't widely held by indices, a lot of these trades trade at really low multiples. Maybe they're only growing two to 3% versus 15 to 20%, but they trade at a low multiple. There's a little growth. And by the way, interest costs are four to five percent for these companies to borrow, and their equities yield ten percent on an earnings yield basis. That is an incredible arb, and all of them are going out and taking advantage of that. And I do think like that's the area where there is the most opportunity for investors, whether they're value investors, control investors, any type of investors. I think that's where it's really interesting. Absolutely. There are value opportunities. There are opportunities to be able to absorb volatility, where if you don't like volatility or need to think about volatility, then use sizing discipline, have some cash. Uh, You don't need to have a huge position, but if you're willing to take that, that can be relatively uh, less expensive. And then there's going to be opportunity with this credit environment for transactions. There should be tons of M&A. There should be tons of private equity. Yeah, on the on the volatility side, and this is kind of just blowing way past what I was thinking, but you know, I think a lot of the opportunities on the volatility side have been these companies with a lot of leverage screen very poorly. So whether it, you know, recently accounting rules have forced companies to put operating leases onto the balance sheet, and all of a sudden you look at a traditional retailer last year, it was two times levered. This year they bring all their operating leases on their balance sheet. It's 12 times levered. I think there's been a lot of opportunities to step in and buy these kind of levered equity stubs, whether it's from accounting metrics or it's just private equity IPO to company at 10 times EBITDA with five times leverage. Now the company's trading for six times EBITDA and it still has five times leverage. So you get that levered equity stuff. I think a lot of investors are avoiding that type of stub equity optionality. I think there's a lot of value in that. They screen very poorly. They're not in a lot of indices, but I I have been seeing a lot of opportunity there. The getting here has been hard for a lot of stock pickers because of this median mean problem. It's quite like if you think about if you were a neighbor of 
Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, you'd have this big median mean problem where you'd be vastly poorer <laughs> on one standard, even if you're kind of a regular guy on the other. So even if you're kind of a regular sock picker because of the median mean difference, if you didn't happen to pick or had no reason to pick fang stocks, liquid, low vol, that category amongst the remaining kind of sensible kind of average smaller cap value, accepting higher volatility, it could be a much, much worse than the average weighted by market cap. And, and this is actually something, again, we're, we're away from what I talk, want to talk about, but this is something I've been brewing over my mind. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. You know, I think 20 years ago, 10 years ago, if you had gone to a manager and said, hey, you're going to do 10% annualized returns for the next five years, I think a lot of managers would have been thrilled, right? 10% annualized is a great number. Is it a historic number? No, but it's a great number. But over the past five years, if you've done 10% annualized, I think you've trailed most of the indices. You've probably trailed a lot of your peers. I think you've probably beat a lot of your peers, but you've probably trailed most of the indices. Your clients are coming to you and saying, hey, why are you trailing the indices? And I do wonder if there's a little bit of that I live next to Jeff Bezos, so even though I'm a multimillionaire or billionaire, I'm jealous or disappointed because I'm comparing myself to the Smith. This is more for hedge fund managers, mutual fund managers, maybe serious investors who really track themselves. But I do wonder if that jealousy has made a lot of investors either A, burnt out a little bit, or B, take on more risks than they would otherwise take because they look at the indices and they're not happy kind of with their own internal scorecard. The external scorecard is judging them. Does that make sense? I think it does make sense. It's kind of a hedge fund equivalent of the social media problem of judging your reality versus others ideal with all the selection biases and so forth. But when I started, the whole privacy of investor letters was fairly sacrosanct. Now, I can't every think letter of any gets on seeking alpha or the reddit yeah constantly yeah. and so and I always kind of take a special note of outlier performance especially the better performance and so you're kind of very very conscious of how everybody's doing uh, particularly the best ones yeah and on the, the counter to that is every letter gets out there except for a lot of times the really bad ones yes. so I can think of ones where I've been like wow this guy, like outlier performance. Wow, that's, I don't know how he's doing it. And then you're like, oh, I haven't seen a letter from him in <laughs> nine months. Where has it been? It's like, oh yeah, he was taking a lot of risk and he blew up or something. Anyway, exactly. I want to turn back to the market for one yes. second. And then we'll move on. You know, one thing I've thought with when these retailers come out and they put out really nice forecasts or really nice earnings and it kind of diverges from the market. One thing I do think about is, is the market just kind of like, the retailers are just giving you their outlook for the business and what they're seeing in the moment. But is the market kind of discounting the next nine months where, hey, if this trade war takes one more turn to the south or, hey, there are a lot of different variations of this, but is the market discounting right now things are really good and we're pricing the stocks like they're average because we see a 40% chance of things taking a really negative turn. They're, they're really working more as a discounting machine for all of the different possibilities, whereas the retailers are just coming out and telling you what they're seeing in the moment, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see it more as in the moment. When I look at the last couple recessions, uh, my recollection is that people were building, buying, uh, doing the things that are being less less sensitive to online competition right up to the last minute. Yeah. I mean, sometimes literally just right, you know, that it's really <laughs> the last people minute. keep spending until they lose their jobs and they're cut off by their people, people until the bartender credit card employment office cuts them off. They keep going. Cool. Well, that was kind of meaty discussion. Let's turn to a little bit more fun discussion and let's start with overstock.com. I mean, 
I don't know where to start. It was quite a month. Their CEO resigned after a huge controversy where he suggested the FBI asked him to start a romantic relationship with Russian spy Maria Butina. I'm not, I'm not sure how to say your last name. The whole story it gets so crazy that it's difficult for me to recap. There's a lot online out there. If you haven't seen it, I would definitely suggest going to watch some of the interviews. But the basics is he alleges that he was part of a deep state conspiracy that had him spy on Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, and Ted Cruz. And then he also said that he was coming forward upon the advice of his, and I'm quoting, Omaha rabbi, which was a clear reference to saying Warren Buffett suggested I come public with this deep state knowledge. So I I don't even know what to say. uh, He's got a very colorful history, which I'm happy to let you go into. I don't know what to say. What do you think of all of the overstock craziness? Craziness is is the word. And there has been several iterations, permutations through the years of kind of paranoid and grandiose uh, stories that sure sound delusional from a, a distance that would be strange on many, many grounds, a kind of private sector informant with no particular local knowledge to these characters. And they are kind of exactly the characters that if you were having fantasies, but made it as far as the newspaper, these are the names that would occur to you. So hopefully there aren't too many parallels in the corporate world on the paranoia side, there are lots of parallels on the grandiosity side. And grandiosity is always a characteristic that I find to be worrisome. Uh, I think quite a few founders are grandiose and they wouldn't make it past HR or they wouldn't survive HR if they were already at a company, if they were in any other role, if they were a mid-level person or a low-level person, that that would not be an acceptable characteristic, kind of uh, opposite of humility, opposite of being able to react to new information and respond in kind of rational ways whenever it's humbling. But it's very consistent with other CEOs to a greater or lesser degree who are founders and particularly prevalent amongst the people who scapegoat short selling. That uh, I don't know if this is what Drove him over the edge subsequently, but he was kind of uh, first came to my attention as somebody who scapegoated short selling. Uh, the inability to look at somebody making a case, uh, I mean, saying to me, non falsifiable is kind of a word that's right up there with rational for a case that makes sense. If there's not a case, opposite your case. In fact, it can't be scientific. Uh, And if you look at somebody like Warren Buffett, for example, he's even had his annual meetings, short sellers able to give their case. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of what a normal person with normal ideas and a normal business uh, uh, has as a reaction to people who have different views. Yeah, no, I, you know, on the short seller thing, I thought the best thing, one of the best things I ever saw was uh, Whitney Tilson published a short thesis on Netflix. I think it was five, six years ago. And uh, Reed Hastings came out and said, why you shouldn't short Netflix? And, you know, I thought it was a, a very rational response. He posted on Seeking Alpha. It was very rational. He didn't, he didn't say short sellers are evil, corporate, are evil, manipulative. He just said, hey, we've got a great business. Let me lay out the case for you. I don't want you to lose money, but, you know, mm-hmm. anyone can do it. That was a great uh, back and forth. No, I think Overstock is interesting because he's had a years-long battle attacking naked shorts. I think he sued Goldman Sachs. And I think that got really weird, if I'm remembering correctly. But it, it's interesting because... He's had a decade-long battle against complaining about short sellers and naked shorts. 
And I can't think of any other company that has started attacking naked shorts and that has survived for as long as kind of overstock survived. And I don't want to say they've thrived, but, you know, they had a blockchain thing that got their stack up to like $100 per share for a while. I think there's around 20 today, but it's not like this company is going bankrupt. They, they've survived for well over a decade attacking the short sellers. Can you think of any other company that survived that long doing that? Not a single one. Yeah, I can't. I can't either. But I mean, it has been so much fun to follow this company. You know, at, once once a year, this company will come out with a press release, and it'll, it'll have my index be like, "Oh my god, this is incredible!" I didn't realize like public companies could do this. Uh, anyway, speaking of companies that att- attack shorts, let's turn to Tesla real quick. This month, Bethany McLean, she's the woman who published the smartest guys in the room, the Enron book. She also published the first article, I think in Fortune, maybe Forbes, that kind of broke down the short thesis on Enron. She published a long article on Tesla. There's a lot in there, but I think the most kind of damning thing in there is saying that Elon Musk basically lied to bail out uh, Solar City before it went bankrupt and uh, have Tesla take them over. I'll just disclose here we have a small short position in Tesla, but I wanted to flip it over to you. That that might kind of set the ball up for what you think. But what did you think of the article and uh, kind of Tesla, Solar City, all that? I am a huge uh, Bethany McLean fan. Uh, I thought it was a terrific article. She does really good work. If anything, her history is one of pulling punches. Uh, She uses multiple sources. Mm -hmm. If something spills ink from her pen, it's right. If something doesn't make it on the paper, it could be something she has a real big hunch on and she just doesn't quite have it confirmed. If she said something negative about me, I would be very reticent to hit back too hard because she probably has a few counter punches up her sleeve. The full, the whole story, I, I thought it was great. Well, sourced. the whole story, like having followed Tesla for a long time, every time I thought it was going to, you know, she'd start and she'd start down an alley and... Having followed a long time, I thought there were like four more doors she could go down that would be a lot more negative, and she would just stop there. And I thought the whole thing was, this is 100% verifiable. I have multiple sources. I agree with you. I I thought it could have gone deeper, but I thought it did a great job of like only hitting things that could be proven, backed up completely. There was no conjecture in there. I think that Musk in this, a funny aside is that she mentioned that one of the first comments she got from this article, and I believe it was from a prominent short seller of Tesla that she's uh, been in contact with uh, said that this isn't going to change anybody's mind. It's a religious war. Uh, And the people on both sides are kind of in their camp uh, as if it was a religion. I think that that was a very apropos comment. I would say that Elon Musk is an example of another founder CEO who is grandiose. And part of that grandiosity is that he so brilliantly controls the narrative and controls the topic, that he's able to say things that are not falsifiable and then simply change the topic if it looks like there might be some potential falsifiability. So like as soon as you get to some claim that is kind of coming home one way or another, then there's a new dramatic, exciting claim that's literally able to take everybody's attention uh, away from whatever uh, happened before. Uh, in religious terms, it's as if his standard is infallibility and he needs to keep it going. And that's something where, boy, he might believe he can make things true that aren't true when he says them. You know, I, I think that's right. I, I do. Th- I think Elon's got a lot more promoter in him, but yeah. it does remind me of like, Steve Jobs, everyone said he had this reality distortion field, mm-hmm. I think is what they called in the book, where you would look at something and you'd be like, we're way behind. There's no way we can get this iPhone out in 
a month or something. People are like, we're going to get it out in two weeks, not a month. You know, it, I do think there's something to founders with crazy visions, motivational. I, I do think they can do more than most people can do because they can motivate a team. They can sell that vision. Elon clearly has that. But as the article clearly lays out, I think he's gone way past that with a lot of the claims. A million robo-taxis on the road by 2020 is one that jumps out. But the stuff he pulled with Solar City that's detailed in the article where, you know, launching a fake lot with fake roof tiles, obviously that I think that takes it uh, a line too far. I want to just get two thoughts from you real quick before we wrap up. Sure. One, I'm really surprised and people who would, people are going to have to read the article for this, but I'm really surprised that Elon Musk and the Gigafactory 2 up in Buffalo, that there hasn't been more pushback from New York looking for that money. I, I mean, I've just heard nothing about it, and it seems like it's it's so blatant that it, they're not delivering. What do you what do you think about that? Same administration in a one party state where they are going to be horribly embarrassed the day they admit what happened. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of my favorite lines from AQRS Cliff Asnes is when the government uh, picks uh, winners and losers, uh, they have recently appear to just pick losers. <laughs> I mean, there's not that many example of kind of these public-private kind of partnerships where the taxpayer is on the hook for huge amounts of money up front, and then there's vague promises uh, later. And so this is New York uh, State's Solyndra, uh, and uh, nobody looks good having, uh, you know, the con man short for confidence man and everybody's confidence is required here from the debt markets to the equity markets to the boards to the states and these there's no politician of prominence who's able to call them on this because they're the ones who got in the situation too yeah and i'll just wrap up with one thing and i've, I've said this several times but i i I've recently read a bunch of uh, fraud books and you actually recommended The Match King and I read it this year and this month. And when I was reading it and all the other fraud books, including Enron, uh, you know, the thing that jumped out at me and not just with Tesla, but with a lot of shady companies, like just how frequently the the rhythms and patterns of I'll call them sketchier companies repeat, you know, in 19, in the 1920s, the match King is decrying like every time a negative news article comes out, he says it's FUD, it's fear, it's uncertainty, it's doubt. They're trying to create this FUD. The the press and the short sellers are ganging up against us. And that's in the 1920s. And, you know, you fast forward almost a hundred years, you come to Tesla, Bethany McLean or a different journalist puts out a piece that's critical of them. And they say, oh, I, I will get back to you very shortly, implying that the piece is written by shorts and they attack the short sellers. Elon wants to create the, the burn of the century for the short sellers. So I just think it's so interesting how history rhymes and repeats like that. And you know, again, disclosure, we're short a little bit of Tesla, but I see, every time I read one of these books, I see so many parallels to what's happening here. I'll, I'll let you have the last word. If you Absolutely. Wanted. No, I think that was very good. Agree completely. Totally worth reading that book too, but it does uh, seem uh, very, very familiar. Great. Well, I, I think uh, this was a fun talk. I think we'll wrap it up here. We'll talk to you guys next month. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk then.